You know, the longer the silence, the louder the sound that breaks it. And before Jesus Christ arrived and entered into the world, the silence was long. You understand, for 400 years before Christ was born, God hadn't spoken a single thing to Israel. Not a word, not a syllable. There were no prophets, no messages, no visions, no dreams, no updates. There were no reassuring words of comfort reminding the people of God that God's promises were still intact. There was nothing. There was nothing. Instead, all there was for century upon century was a deafening and excruciating silence. And every year that passed, the more hopeless it became. You understand, don't you, that the Old Testament literally ends on a cliffhanger? A 400-year cliffhanger of silence? The Old Testament ends literally with the people of Israel, what's left of them anyway, crushed and broken, living in sin, standing in the rain, fade to black, the end, the credits roll, and then 400 years of silence. And if you were Israeli in that silence, you would wonder, did we blow it? Did we push things too far? Did we sin too much? Did we push God over the edge? Did he cancel his promises? Did, did he abolish the covenants? Did he terminate his plan? Did he revoke his adoption of us as sons and daughters of God? And in that fearful, suffocating silence, you would definitely pray, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. That was their prayer. For century upon century upon century with no clear indication that God ever actually heard that prayer. Until, until the very moment of our text this morning. Because in our text, after all those years, God finally breaks the silence. And how he does is not, is through an extraterrestrial being. Not an alien, but an angel. And this angel shows up with messages for two different people. One for a man one for a woman. He was married, she was engaged. He was older, she was a teenager. His name was Zacharias, and you know her name. Her name was Mary. Both were faithful and righteous. Both believed the promises of God. Both were waiting for the restoration of Israel. Both were looking for the Messiah, and yet neither one of them had children. And yet both were promised a son and each of those would be a miracle and both would be major players on the scene of history. One son would be a prophet. The other son would be the savior of the world. One would be a reformer and a messenger and eventually a martyr. But the other son would be the redeemer and the Messiah and even God himself in human flesh. The first son you know is John the Baptist and the other son you definitely know Jesus of Nazareth. And the announcement of both of those sons is right here in the text, which we're going to look at over the next two weeks. And you know that John the Baptist was a big deal. He was a big deal. In fact, he was the greatest prophet ever to exist in history, but he was nothing compared to the son of Mary who was sent by God on a mission to save ruined sinners from eternal woe and despair. Because you know, last week we started a Christmas series contemplating the question, what child is this? Who is this child? Virgin mother, born in a barn, sung by angels, seen by shepherds, worshipped by wise men. What child is this who calmed a storm, 
who healed the sick, who raised the dead, who claimed to be God, who was slain for sinners and then raised himself from the tomb. What child is this exactly who will come back and take the planet that rightfully belongs to him and build his kingdom upon it and reign forever? And I know you already know the answer and all of that already is the answer. But all of that is exactly what we see in the gospel of Luke. And yet you realize, beloved, there's a danger here. There's a danger preaching the birth of Christ during the Christmas season. And the danger is the dreaded curse of the familiar. Isn't it? We already know this stuff. I already heard and I've already seen and I've already read everything that you're about to read and see. And yet we forget that this is a Christ who saves. This is a Christ who changes us and who challenges us and who is coming again to reign over us. This is the dragon-slaying, serpent-crushing, sin-bearing Savior and King who will arrive on the scene of history and who will make all things be the way they ought to be. And this is in the text, beloved, to give us radical hope, to give us invincible faith, and to give us unconquerable joy. So here we go, beloved. Warmer than fire and sweeter than cider is the moment that God broke the silence and he announced the arrival of his son. And yet this morning we begin with the first son, John the Baptist. Here's where we're going. This morning I want you to see from our text three Christmas implications of John the Baptist. Three Christmas implications implications of John the Baptist that help us trust and treasure Christ as the all-sufficient King and Savior of our lives. That's where we're going. The three Christmas implications of John the Baptist that help us trust and treasure him as the all-sufficient King and Savior of our lives. And it'll break down into four parts. But, but the question, however, the question before we look at any of that, the question we have to get to the bottom of first is why the Gospels are in your Bible. Why are they there? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, why are these in your Bible? Because you understand these aren't just history or the exploits of an eccentric rabbi who did nice things for people but took it a little too far and got himself killed. No, no, you understand the Gospels are the saga of the God who became man for us and for our salvation, aren't they? I mean, what are the Gospels? But the compelling resume of Jesus Christ designed to persuade you to give up everything to follow him. What are the gospels but samples and previews and theatrical trailers of the king who will come and single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world? That's the gospels. And you know that each of the gospels had its own unique contribution and portrayal and perspective and, and, and unique uh, complementary portrayal of the life of Christ. And yet it's in verses 1 through 4 where Luke explains exactly why he wrote his gospel. Look at what he says. He says, Inasmuch as many have endeavored to compile an account about the things that have been fulfilled among us, even as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having followed everything from the beginning, to write to you, O most excellent Theophilus, with accuracy in consecutive order that you would know literally the certainty about the things you were taught. Now it's very interesting because you notice there that this Luke is that this Luke dedicated his gospel to one man, a man named Theophilus. And we literally have no idea who this is. But I think he's a believer even a very prominent believer, perhaps even a pastor in the early church. And you notice in verse four, the purpose of why Luke composed his gospel, that he would have the certainty about the things that he was taught. You see this. 
Luke writes to give Theophilus certainty, to give you here in this room the certainty about all the things that transpired about the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is real. This is certain. This happened. Christmas is not the fantastical birthday party of a tribal deity, but the saga of God made flesh. And putting the pieces together, it would seem that Luke wrote his gospel to give Theophilus the firepower he needs to answer questions from skeptics and critics and seekers about things that he was not personally there to see. Which means this gospel is a tool, not just for personal edification, but for public proclamation. In other words, this gospel exists not just to thrill the souls of believers with the Savior that they love, but it's also to help them preach with confidence about the Savior that they were not personally there to see with their very own eyes. Because Luke admits, he confesses that he was not the first to write in a gospel account. There were others before him. In fact, he says there were many others before him, which would have to include Matthew and Mark. And notice verse 2, those previous gospel accounts were written by people who from the very beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. I mean, you see this from birth to death, from conception to resurrection, the previous gospel accounts were composed by people who saw everything go down with their very own eyes. And verse three, Luke adds his own gospel account to the pile just for Theophilus. And notice there, notice his methodology of how he went about it. Despite those previously worthy gospel accounts, it seemed fitting for me as well. Having followed everything from the beginning to write to you, O most excellent Theophilus, with accuracy, a consecutive account that you would know the certainty of the things which happened. I mean, you see what this is. This was a thoroughly researched, peer-reviewed, chronological presentation of Christ based on personal eyewitness testimony of godly people who saw every single thing go down with their own eyes from the very beginning. This is incredible. The gospel of Luke did not fall magically out of the sky. It came into being through the painstaking labors of an investigative journalist and historian who wrote under the sovereign power of the spirit, a document that is unscathed by human error or contamination. And notice what he does. He goes back all the way back, not just to the birth of Christ, but even to before the birth of John the Baptist, which himself, which means Luke takes us back 2000 years, 7,000 miles away to the very moment that God broke the silence after 400 years of not saying a single thing. And it wasn't a day, it was not a day just like any other day because when God did break the silence, it was inside the temple itself. Let's begin with part one, the drama. The drama, verses five through seven, look at the text. Now it was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest by the name of Zacharias from the division of Abijah and his name was, and his wife was from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth and they were both righteous before God proceeding blameless in all of the commandments and righteous decrees of the Lord. And yet they did not have a child as Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in their days. You feel the tension here, don't you? You see the drama and suspense. The suspense is here's this couple, not elderly, but older, not in their 80s probably, but in their 50s, either way, past the point of having children. And you notice that Luke describes them. They were both righteous before God, proceeding blameless in all of the commandments, all of the commandments and righteous decrees of the Lord. I mean, these are righteous people. These are blameless people. You could tell these people loved 
the word of God. And it governed and dictated every single area of their lives. These are not half-hearted, lukewarm, nominal believers going through the motions. No, get this. Luke describes them in such elevated language reserved for only the greatest saints to ever live in history. I'm serious. Not even David and Moses himself were described in such lofty, elevated language. I mean, these people are serious. Add to that, he was a priest. She was a descendant of Aaron, which makes this power couple among the most righteous and godly people ever mentioned in biblical history. And yet the tension is, the tension is, verse 7, they had no children because she was barren and they were both advanced in age. This is tough. This is really, really tough because every couple wants children, especially godly couples, especially godly couples in Israel for whom lots of babies would seem to suggest the blessing and favor of God. And yet this super righteous God centered power couple in the priestly line who loved God with all of their hearts and with all of their souls had none. That's the tension. Too old to have children. On top of humanly incurable fertility issues, there is no way that Zach and Lizzie are ever, ever going to have a baby. They will go to their grave righteous, but childless. Unless, unless God intervenes and does something Profound and supernatural. Because we've, we've heard this story before, haven't we? Abraham and Sarah. Elkanah and Hannah. The parents of Gideon, of Samson rather. All physically, biologically unable to have children. And yet God intervened in every case to advance his sovereign plan. What I'm saying is God ordains barren wombs for such a time as this. God decrees barren wombs. At specific points in history to unfold his glorious plan to save his elect and bring salvation to the nations. And so what Zacharias and Elizabeth could not have possibly known at the time that God was on the move and that incredible things for them were just around the corner, which brings us then to the encounter. The encounter verses 8 through 12. And and here again, I think we see the invisible and silent sovereignty of God lurking in the text. Look at verses 8 through 10. Now it was when he, Zacharias, was serving as a priest in the order of his division before God, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to offer incense in the temple of the Lord. And all of the multitude was waiting outside the temple in the hour of incense. Now, being so far removed from the life of the temple, there's nothing here that grabs us with any particular significance. And yet, and yet, you need to understand that in that day, there were 18,000 priests. 18,000. And all divided into their various families and groups and clans and divisions. And you understand these divisions would rotate on schedule to travel to Jerusalem twice a year. And if your division was selected, only one of those priests would be selected to go in and offer incense inside the temple. And so you do the math. That means that two out of the 18,000 every single year were chosen to perform the sacred worship inside the temple, which means most priests never got the opportunity to do this. So what did they do? They cast lots. They cast lots. You see, he was chosen by lot to enter. And you know that casting lots was a little bit like, Rolling dice, it's like Yahtzee, or bingo, or flipping a coin, or rock, paper, scissors. It was random, and chance, and luck, and coincidence, right? But we know better than that. See, God doesn't do random. There's, there's, there's no such thing as, as chance, luck, and karma and coincidence are inventions from godless men. 
All there is, is the sovereign providence of God that governs every lot cast and every roll of the dice in Las Vegas and every single moment of our lives, by the way. And here the lot fell to Zacharias. And you have to understand, this would have been the biggest moment of his priestly career. This was his moment in the show on the big stage, his 15 minutes of fame, as it were. I mean, he was not in it for the fame, but you get the idea. This would be the biggest moment of his priestly career. And yet what was about to happen to him when he got inside the temple made it not only the biggest moment of his life, but even one of the biggest moments in redemptive history. Because it's here that God cracks the walls and breaks the spell of silence and resumes, as it were, the plan of salvation that had lain dormant from all human appearances after 400 years. And with heart pounding and hands trembling, Zacharias walks into the temple, into the holy place, past the lampstand, past the table with the sacred bread, up to the altar of incense. When all of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, a being from another dimension suddenly appears. Look at verse 11. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And verse 12, Zacharias was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. And the reason why he was afraid is because it's not every day that someone, let alone an extraterrestrial angelic being, suddenly apparates into the room. And Zacharias isn't just startled. He, he feared for his very life here because every time angels appear on the scene of history, you have to understand this could either be the best day of your life or the last day of your life. It could go either way for you because angels were oftentimes messengers of judgment. And yet the angel quickly responds with words of comfort that this would in fact be the best day of Zacharias's life and one of the most important in history, which brings us part three, the pronouncement. The pronouncement, verses 13 through 17. With crowd waiting outside, incense container in his hand, heart pounding in his chest, Zacharias looks at this angelic being right in the eyes with zero idea of why he's being cornered here in the temple and the angel speaks, verse 13. And the angel said to him, do not fear, Zacharias, because your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth shall bear a son to you. You're going to be a father. Zacharias, your, your, your prayer has been heard, which is really interesting, isn't it? Because it's very possible that they hadn't prayed that in years. Think about it. They were, as it were, advanced in age. They were probably done praying this years ago. Her struggles with infertility also made this humanly impossible. Likely they were done praying this prayer, and yet it didn't matter at all because God was granting their request. And the words that he never, ever thought he'd hear in a million years, the angel says, your wife Elizabeth shall bear to you a son, which would be gift enough. By itself, that would be astonishing. But you see, this was more than just a son. This was a gift to the entire world because not only would he be a prophet, but he would be a prophet who would introduce the Messiah to the world. And usually, usually picking the baby's name is part of the fun of being a parent. And yet the name of this child had already been chosen. God had already selected the name of this son and his name was John, Yohanan in Greek, Yehohanan in Hebrew, which literally means Yahweh has been gracious. And he had been gracious. Not only to the power couple, but God, but, but gracious to the world and sending the long awaited Messiah and their son would have the job of announcing him and proclaiming him to the world. And this John, you know, would eventually grow up to be known as John the Baptist, wasn't he? And he was single his entire life. He lived out in the boonies. He lived in utter, utter poverty. He wore weird handmade clothes made out of camel's hair. He ate nasty bugs in the desert, although eating bugs is becoming a thing now. Don't go there. 
He was hated by the elite. He was eventually imprisoned, and then eventually he was made a martyr and had his head chopped off and served on a platter at a birthday party. And yet, and yet, and the reason why is precisely because he gave himself to the task of preaching and calling the people of God to repentance and faith. And despite, despite his lack of worldly achievements, he brought he would bring profound delight and joy to his mom and dad. Verse 14, he will bring you joy and gladness. And not just you, but many, many shall rejoice at his birth. Why? Not because he would be great in the eyes of the world, but because he would be great in the eyes of the Lord, which means, which means he would be pivotal to God's plan unfolding in the world. In fact, he was the greatest prophet to ever live. In fact, according to Christ himself in Luke 10, verse 10, he was the greatest man to ever live on the history of the world outside of Christ. Notice verse 15. He would never drink wine or, or alcoholic beverages, which doesn't mean he was a teetotaler, nor that it's sin to drink beer, but the point is, the point is, he would allow nothing in his life at all that would in any way detract him from his mission of preaching and proclamation and preparing people to meet their king. Verse 15, utterly unique in the history of babies, this baby boy would be filled with the spirit from the womb of his mother, which does not mean he was saved in the womb, but he was set apart for, from the womb for the sacred task of preparing people to meet their Messiah. You understand what John was, was a reformer. A reformer to bring about a revival and reformation to a people who had long been blind and dead and damned and disobedient. These were people trapped in darkness and defiance and despair. And yet look at verses 16 and 17. Look at the effects and the outcomes of his ministry. He will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will proceed before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient and the attitude of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I mean, you understand, he would be used to bring about a reformation and revival that had not been seen for centuries in Israel, maybe even ever in their history. This is that big. Verse 17, cryptic and mysterious, John would proceed before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. And what that means is, is that he, his preaching would be endowed with such unusual supernatural capacity that would, bring, that would bring about devastating transformation at the deepest levels of society. Because notice verse 17, John's piercing proclamation of the word of God would turn the hearts of fathers back to their children. Think about that language. The hearts of fathers turn to their children. Meaning what? Meaning that where true Awakening really happens, beloved. It is first in the home when fathers embrace their role as shepherd of the family. Under John's soul-splitting preaching of the word, fathers would be awakened from their spiritual apathy. And then the neglect of their children's souls. And they would embrace their role to reach and to preach and to teach their children the word of God. Because you know that a reformation is really actually happening when fathers become the pastor of their homes. Verse 17, secular disobedient people would be turned into the attitude of righteous. And I think the point is that they would be transformed at the deepest possible level. This would not be some mere externality. This would be true transformation. And then notice, notice verse 17. This is the most important thing that the angel says that John's ministry would be to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Does that sound familiar? You recognize that at all? That is a massive statement. You know why? Because what it is, is a quotation from Isaiah 40, verse 3. 
which predicts that a prophet would come on the scene and prepare the people, get this, for the arrival of God himself. That God would incarnate himself as a literal, historical human being and save his people from the inside out. And it was this prophet's job to introduce him to the world. You understand, John stepped up to the pulpit in Judah with the ferocity of a lion to prepare a blind and dead apostate people to receive the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, his preaching would break like a hammer and burn like fire to help a treacherous people see that they were desperate sinners who desperately needed a Savior. I'm wondering, church, I'm wondering if you understand the ramifications of John the Baptist. I'm wondering if you understand the weight and gravity of the situation here. Because it's true, it's true that that John the Baptist has come and gone. He has lived and died. And it would be very easy to just pass this off as ancient history. This is interesting to be sure, but utterly irrelevant to my life. And yet, and yet, the message of John the Baptist still rings in the air, doesn't it? Because when he showed up, he preached to crowds of people not unlike this one here. And you remember what he said to them. He preached to them, repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. I baptize you in water for repentance. But there is one coming after me. And he is mightier than I. And he will baptize you into fire. And so the question is, have you responded to the message of the Baptist? Have you repented and yielded to the king that he proclaimed? I'm serious. Have you stopped trying to earn your own righteousness? And be good enough on your own. And have you submitted to the king in repentance and faith? Because I'm just telling you, there are two ways that this is going to go. If you have not believed, you can believe and you can be baptized by me into water. Or you can disbelieve and be baptized by him into fire. The choice is yours and you must choose. Which brings us then to part three. Part three, which I'm calling the curse, verses 18 through 20. Because you have to understand, Zacharias is understandably baffled and perplexed and confused by this, just trying to wrap his head around the announcement, just like we are. And he responds to the angel, verse 18. How will I know this to be? How can this possibly be? For I am old and my wife, notice the way he describes her age. My wife is advanced in her days. This is a wise man. As Rich Kasky put it, she's got a lot of experience. In other words, look, I appreciate what you're trying to do here. But I'm old and so is my wife. And we are too old to be shelling out kids, let alone, let alone a son who would grow up to be the most significant prophet in the history of the world. And we, we get his rationale, don't we? And were we there, we would probably say the same thing, but you can totally tell, you can totally tell that his logic was human. It was secular. It was, it was purely horizontal. It was utterly devoid of a God-exalting view of meticulous sovereignty. In other words, the fatal flaw of his faithless logic was that he viewed the situation through the lenses of human limitations, didn't he? Yes, they were older, that's true. Yes, they had humanly incurable fertility issues that made getting pregnant impossible for science, for doctors, for surgery, for medication, 
But what was age? What was infertility compared to the God of the ages who reigns over history and determines the outcome of every single moment in the history of the world? Don't get me wrong. Zacharias was a man of staggering faith and incredible, holy dedication to Yahweh. But even this was above his pay grade. Even the, even the faith of this godly man reached a, a breaking point when he transposed onto God human limitations and restrictions, wasn't it? This would not do. So the angel responds to this lapse of faith in the strangest way. Look at verses 19 and 20. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands before God, and I was sent to you to speak these things and to proclaim these things to you. And behold, you will be silent and not able to speak until these things come to pass. Why? Because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their time. It's weird that the angel waits till now to reveal his name, isn't it? And the name of the angel is Gabriel, which is interesting because there's only a couple angels named in the Bible. The rest are virtually anonymous. And you notice that he further identifies himself as the one who stands before God at his very throne, which means this is not some low-level peon in the ranks of angels. No, this angel belongs to the entourage, to God's very inner circle sent by God with the words of God to reveal the plan of God. And I think the point is everything that, that the angel just said to Zacharias should have had instant credibility. He should have known better. When, for crying out loud, did an angel ever appear in history? And what he said failed to come to pass. Name one. And at the end of the day, was not Zacharias begging for a sign? Says you. How do I know this is going to go down in the way you say it? How do I know? Ante up. You got a rabbit in your hat? I want to see it. Okay. Okay. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. He gives him a sign, just not the sign he was expecting. Verse 20. Behold, you will be silent. And not able to speak until these things come to pass. Why? Because you did not believe. You did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And we might call that a little harsh for afflicting him with muteness, silence, for not believing something that frankly was pretty hard to believe. And yet, let's call it a severe mercy instead. Because that's exactly what it it was severe, yes, but it was a mercy. This was a loving lesson from the Lord to fortify this dear man's faltering faith, which is exactly the reason why every single trial in our lives exists. And I think in the end of the day, what this does, does it not, is dramatically illustrate to us just how God, how seriously God takes it that his people Believe his word. Is that not what this is? Is that not the issue? That if he has said it, there is no need for signs to confirm it. That it is self-authenticating. And there is nothing needed to verify its claims. That by virtue of being the word of God, it is true. It is truth. It is worthy to be trusted. Put it this way. Even if what friends and family and doctors and politicians and investigative journalists and psychologists and even your own feelings and experiences conflict with the word of God, that the word of God always wins every time. That if it's in the text and it's on the page, it should have instant credibility, reliability, and authority in our lives. 
And the reason for that is because it's not just a piece of literature. It is the very voice of God himself. You see, the lapse in Zacharias's faith was that he trusted his guts and his reason and his logic over what God has revealed. And my question for you, beloved, my question is, do you see anything like that in your lives right now? In what areas of your life does what God says in his word conflict with some other voice? The voice in your head? The voice of fear? The voice of your feelings? Of your intuitions? Of your emotions? Of friends? Or even your family? In what ways is your faith right now being stretched where you must simply trust and obey the word of God and simply let the chips fall where they may? Because remember that at the end of the day, the word of God alone is always in the majority. And that brings us finally to part four. Part four, the conception. The conception, verses 21 through 25. Because you remember, you remember this whole time, there is a crowd of people waiting outside. They're getting a little nervous. They're getting a little antsy because a transaction that should have taken five minutes, I suppose, is now taken 15. And the people are starting to get a little restless and antsy. Did he die? Did he fall asleep? Is he lost in the temple? What is going on here? When suddenly, verse 22, Zechariah finally emerges from the temple and everybody can see that something's not right. White as a sheet. He is shaken. He is in shock. Uh, he, uh, not, uh, not because of this encounter with his angel, not to mention the news that he just received. And Zacharias comes out of the temple frantic and panicked because this dude no longer has the ability to speak. Some scholars even think that he was both deaf and mute. And somehow, some way, the people rightly put together the fact that he had seen a vision inside the temple which is massive and staggering because what that means is that the massive drought and bout of silence after 400 years was over. It was over. God had spoken. Yahweh had intervened again. His promises were still intact. His covenants were still good. He had not revoked his adoption of them. And somehow, somehow with sign language and charades and Pictionary, Zacharias has to communicate to Elizabeth that God had opened her womb. Love to see that picture. And that she would conceive and bear a son. And that the son that she would bear would be a prophet. And not just a prophet, but a prophet whose job was to prepare the people to receive the Messiah himself. And so... Zacharias, who's maybe deaf and mute, he finishes up his priestly duties and they go home and then look at verses 24 and 25, the fulfillment of the angel's words. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, conceived. And yet she kept herself hidden for five months, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he saw fit to remove my reproach from among men. Her response is interesting. Instead of immediately announcing it out loud on Facebook or Instagram or whatever that she was pregnant, she instead kept silent, didn't tell a single soul, and kept herself hidden for five straight months. It's very interesting. And Luke doesn't tell us why. But she does, kind of. It is at least a partial explanation. You see, I think Luke interviewed this woman. I think Luke had a conversation with this woman. And in that conversation, she revealed to him her inner monologue. The thoughts she was thinking in her head at the time. Because the reason why she waited five months to show herself after being pregnant is because after five months of being pregnant, the evidence speaks for itself, doesn't it? She would emerge into public after five months with a totally obvious baby bump and undeniable evidence that the living God had intervened in their lives. And yet you can totally tell, verse 25, that the people had been unkind. Because you understand in that day, being childless was not graciously handled in that culture. 
Instead of compassion, the cultural trend was to criticize and assume the worst. And yet you have to understand is that this five-month moment of triumph was less about revenge and personal vindication than it was a vindication of the glory of God himself. You understand, Elizabeth, she's not a petty woman. She's not some vindictive woman looking for a payback. This is a righteous woman. This is a blameless woman, filled with God's word, refined by decades of suffering. Who endured for decades critical treatment for a situation that she could not control. And I think the point is she went out in public for the first time in five months. And all of the reproach and assumptions and criticisms that people had made against them for years would be silenced and humbled. And they would be rebuked for their own lack of faith in the God who does the impossible. And four months later, she had her son. And you know, you know that they poured their lives into that boy, investing in him the word of God. And yet there was a profound calling on his life, not just to be a prophet, but the greatest prophet in the history of prophets. And eventually he moved out into the desert, held revival meetings, preached to thousands, baptized innumerable people in the Jordan River, preparing these people to meet the Messiah and King for whom they had been waiting for centuries. And you see, that's just the thing about John the Baptist. He's not really there as a personal example to you, although he is an example. He's not in the text merely to be the object of our emulation. Although there is much to emulate, put it this way, the point of John the Baptist is not John the Baptist, but the one John the Baptist proclaimed. John put it this way in his gospel in chapter 1, verse 8, talking about John the Baptist. He said, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And what I'm saying is that the birth and the life and the ministry and the preaching of John the Baptist has profoundly Christological implications, and I give you three. Here they are. Number one, John the Baptist points us to the deity of Christ. He points us to the deity of Christ. In other words, Jesus Christ is God. The God who became a man for us and for our salvation. You understand, this is not some demigod or half-breed deity like Hercules, half-God, half-man. No, without ever ceasing to be fully God, he became fully man. And you see, John the Baptist understood that because every time they tried to corner him on his own identity, he quoted to them Isaiah 40, verse 3, which says, I am the voice crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. And that word Lord in Hebrew is the name Yahweh. And he applied the text to himself and to Christ. He is the voice and the one that he was preparing people to meet was Yahweh in human flesh. Do you see the reason why that matters? And the reason why that means everything is that you cannot rightly honor Jesus Christ unless you worship him as God. And he must hold the place of supremacy in your lives, which brings us to implication number two. The theme John proclaimed was the supremacy of Christ. The theme John proclaimed was the supremacy of Christ. You see, this is what made him great. This is what made him the greatest human being to live on the face of the planet because because what so defined him was the supremacy of Christ. I mean, multiple times, multiple times when explaining to people who he was. Do you remember what he said? He wouldn't even give his name. He said, there is one coming after me mightier than I whom I am not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. He told his own disciples, he Christ, he must increase, I must decrease. 
You understand, John was glad to be small and forgotten because he knew that ultimate meaning and satisfaction are found not in having a big deal made about us, but about being freed by grace to live and make a big deal about him forever. And my question is, do you share the conviction of the Baptist? That you exist for the worth and the beauty and the value and the supremacy of another. Number three. The hope John provided is found in the Lamb of God alone. The hope John provided is found in the Lamb of God alone because you know the greatest day of John's life and ministry is in John chapter one when he sees Christ coming toward him and in front of a crowd of thousands declares at the top of his lungs, behold. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you know what he just did, don't you? When he said that he just explained how unrighteous man may be reconciled to a righteous God. And the only way that's going to happen is through a Lamb. A sin-bearing, sacrificial substitute who dies in the place of hell, deserving sinners. That's what lamb means. Because in the Old Testament, they offered lambs and bulls and goats as offerings for sin. But you see, all they were was a preview and a picture and a portrayal of the one great final sacrifice to come who by his death would pay for the sins by the sacrifice of himself. See, that's the only way, that's the only way that a sinner can get salvation and satisfaction is through submission and faith in the Lamb of Jesus Christ. And if you have not done so, and my question is, have you done so? Because if you have not done so, I close with the words of John the Baptist himself to convince and persuade you. John said this in John 3.36. In the words of John the Baptist, he says, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. Do you believe? Do you believe in the Son? Because be warned, the one who disbelieves the Son, the one who disobeys the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Oh Lord, thank you for obscure texts. Thank you for this angelic visitation to Zacharias. Otherwise unknown, otherwise anonymous, otherwise forgotten in human history except for Luke. And Lord, we understand that the point of John the Baptist is not even John the Baptist himself, but the one that he proclaimed you, O oh Christ. And so help us, help us in this month with so many trappings, so many distractions, even the clutter of our own souls. Help us to see him clearly, to savor him even more fully, and to be satisfied in him completely. We ask you for your grace and give us also the grace to proclaim and preach him to a world that needs him so desperately. And we thank you for that in advance. It's in his name we pray. Amen.